Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we are positively obsessed with dog behavior. My name is Kayla Fratt, and I'm the owner of Journey Dog Training, where I offer remote behavioral support to owners around the world. We are joined today with Sarah, by Sarah Strumming, and we're going to hear a little bit from her in a minute, um, because we are talking about where dog behavior consultants can learn from sport dog handlers. So dog behavior consultants like myself work mostly with quote-unquote problem dogs, and many of our canine clients struggle with self-regulation in the real world, whether that's fear or anxiety, aggression, high arousal. They're dogs that struggle with just normal life. But behavior consultants aren't the only type of trainer who work with dogs, and we're definitely not the only ones who are working with dogs that struggle with big feelings. So sport dog handlers and dog sport dog trainers also spend a lot of their time working with dogs that can crack under pressure or otherwise struggle with a lot of big feelings. And we're going to hear that phrase come up a couple times today. So I've learned uh, quite a bit from starting to get into a little bit of sport dog stuff. And there's a lot that behavior consultants can definitely learn from sport dog handlers. So we just kind of wanted to jump right into that. And as I said, today we're talking to Sarah Strumming from The Cognitive Canine. And I'm super excited to talk to Sarah today because her niche is pretty unique and she kind of straddles both of these worlds in a really, really cool way. So Sarah, can you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about that unique niche? Sure. Hi. Um, So like you said, I'm Sarah. I have The Cognitive Canine. I teach online classes through Fenzy Dog Sports Academy, and then I also work privately with clients through my own business. And that niche that you talked about is essentially behavior problems in performance or sport dogs. So, and a sport dog, I guess, what separates that from any other dog we might be working with is just as it sounds, it's a dog that's being trained to compete in something. Um, Most of my client dogs are agility dogs, but I do work with obedience dogs, um, scent sport dogs, like nose work dogs, um, and then a little bit here and there of bite sport dogs. So should send IPO uh, or Mondial ring, things like that. Very cool. So just to help get our listeners into um, the into the the world, I guess. Can you walk me through a little bit of what like a trial looks like for our listeners who haven't ever been to a trial and what what is expected of a dog in a trial situation? So in an agility trial specifically um, is an intense, crazy, crazy atmosphere for a lot of dogs. So most of the dogs are really highly aroused, really crazy, bouncing around, lots of barking. Um, really high energy. The people are also kind of worked up in high energy. Um, (laughs) They can be really uh, tight and congested depending on where they are. We usually use most of the space in in a given arena for the actual course. So walking around is often in kind of smaller hallways if it's an indoor trial. Um, So things your dog might have to deal with would be other dogs barking, being in their space, um, not necessarily paying attention to them, but being close to them. Um, people being around loud noises. Sometimes the judge has a microphone. So depending on the different class, the judge might be calling out numbers super loud. There are buzzers, timers. Um, so there's a lot of acoustics, lots of, um, nervous, (laughs) stressed people rushing around, (laughs) lots of barky dogs. It can be a really intense environment for us to ask them to cope in. 
Yeah, and then we're expecting them to go into the ring and perform some pretty intense behaviors um, without treats, correct? You can't. And yep, no. You don't get to bring reinforcement exactly, with you, right? Exactly, no um, reinforcers in the ring. There's a couple of different organizations now that are experimenting with letting people do training rounds. When you can do that, anyway, in this country, and a lot of other countries, that's mm-hmm. been going on a while, but it's still only ever a toy. You're never allowed to bring food into the ring. Yeah, so there's definitely a lot to unpack there that um, one of the things that Sarah and I were talking about right before we got on was the idea that a lot of behavior consultants aren't really often training behaviors all the way through to completion, which is kind of the polar opposite of a sport dog, where the whole goal is not only to have this really beautiful high precision behavior, but we have to be able to do several of them in succession without rewards. Yes, um, it's a big part of training a dog to compete is having lots of high-level behavior with not a lot of payback to the dog. Absolutely. So what are some of the things that your clients are most commonly struggling with? Most of my clients are dog are struggling with their dogs um, exhibiting what they would call kind of high arousal behaviors, meaning mm-hmm. they bark, spin, bite, jump at the handler, and they're usually doing this on course. So and usually when something goes wrong um, or when the dog feels like something went wrong, maybe <laughs> the handler um, doesn't think so. So dogs that bite at, jump at the handler, or sometimes they might spin and bark. Sometimes they might pull a lot of bars because of those behaviors. They might mm-hmm. blow their contact behaviors. Um, they may come off the start line prematurely, things like that. So it's mostly behaviors that people are whether they're right or wrong, attributing to the dog's kind of high state of arousal in that environment. Yeah, absolutely. So just for our listeners who don't do agility, what is like blowing a contact or pulling a Yeah, thank you. Sorry. So um, on the course, you've got several jumps. And if a bar falls on the jump, so it's a little PVC rail that they have to keep up. So if a bar falls, you have... um, you have a non-qualifying score. So gotcha. you need, and they're easily displaceable for safety. So if the dog touches it at all, it's going to fall. And then they have to hit um, on the contact pieces of equipment, which are kind of the planks that the dog runs across. There are these yellow zones that the dog has to hit. So we train them to hit those yellow zones any number of ways. Most people in this country are still teaching them to stop in the yellow zone. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine that that requires the dog to go from often running really quickly to then stopping and then going back to running quickly again. And that can be, that can be tough for them. Um, And then most people utilize a start line stay. So they ask the dog to stay on the start line while they lead out to kind of give themselves an advantage on the course. So that's another area that things go wrong. Definitely. So it sounds like a lot of things where, um, yeah, as something happens on course and that could be any number of things, you're getting a dog that is, essentially falling apart emotionally and we're trying to figure out how to deal with that. Um, and it can manifest in all sorts of different ways. So let's talk a little bit about arousal because I think that's something that both you and I deal with a lot. And, um, how do you kind of define it for yourself and your clients? It sounds like you're really trying to look at the things that you can actually observe, but let's break down arousal a little bit and some of the misconceptions that you hear coming around it as well. So, It's important to break it down and talk about what it actually is or what we think it is because um, you can't cut open the dog and point at arousal. It's not actually something that um, (laughs) 
is clearly or easily defined. So it's best defined by kind of a set of behaviors. And really when people are talking about arousal, they're usually talking about a dog that's just kind of in an unfit um, mental state for what they're being asked to do. Or a dog that simply cannot do what it's being asked to do in the current emotional state that it's in. So for me with my clients, I try to have them talk more about what they think an optimal looking dog looks like. So meaning, mm. you know, when your dog's jaw is chattering and his pupils are enormous, can he still do what you're asking him to do or not? So look at those kind of precursors to behavior. Some of them can and some of them can't. And if spinning and barking and chattering means the dog will pull all the bars on course, <laughs> then those are the things that you want to be paying attention to. So that's what I kind of help them do is just look at their dog, look at the behaviors that their dog is displaying that then historically lead to poor performance. And then how can we put the dog, whether we're putting them in a different feeling emotional state. I think we are. Um, we can't necessarily know that we are, but putting them certainly in a different behavioral state. So maybe their eye, maybe their pupils are a normal size and their tongue is a normal size <laughs> and they're eating food um, without sharking your entire hand off. Um, so what I usually work them through is just being able to have this conversation with the dog of, hey, are you okay right now? And if you're not, how can I help you be? Yeah, absolutely. And that definitely sounds like there's quite a bit of overlap. So we're both kind of sitting down with our clients and talking about what are we seeing? Why is it a problem? When is it a problem? And then how can we either raise or lower that arousal level? Because we both, I know, work with some dogs that um, quote unquote stress down where rather than biting, spinning, barking, going nuts, we're getting dogs that actually won't perform at all. And for me, what that often looks like is a dog that, you know, you try to go out the front door and you've lost the dog already. Um, and that dog is, you know, maybe trying to play tug with the leash for your whole morning walk, or maybe the dog won't go out the front door at all because they're really scared. But either way, we're looking at a lot of similar stuff. Definitely. Um, so I know a lot of what you and basically the whole Fancy staff works on a lot is building connection. And one of the things that I love watching about sport dogs is that back and forth between the dog and the handler and that connection. But that's not something that comes easy and certainly doesn't come naturally for a lot of people. You know, we always there's always that one person with that one dog where they just like were meant for each other. But even then, there was probably some work behind that, what we're seeing. So how are some of the ways that you work on building that connection between the dog and the handler? My biggest thing is trying to help people understand that um, while there probably is this kind of like deeper spiritual thing going on here, I kind of think there is. But when it comes to actual sport dog training, it's very important to say, what are connection type behaviors? What are engagement type behaviors? How can I label those things? And then how can I build a reinforcement history for those things? So it's all about saying, you know, basically I want to teach the dog that when they show up to do anything with me, any kind of training session, because everything starts in training. If you're having problems in the ring, they started in training for you, whether you kind of think they mm -hmm. did or not. Um, I want my dog to show up in training and go, this is going to be great for me. I don't know what it is, but it's going to be great for me because it's always great for me. And that's just about building that um, really solid reinforcement history. 
And it's also about always making sure that the dog is allowed to opt in and that I'm always mm-hmm. asking the dog if they would like to do what I am asking them to do rather than nagging at them to do it. Like if they're sniffing, they're saying, I'm not interested in what you've got right now. And whether that's because they're worried or because you just didn't show up with great stuff today or their history with you <laughs> is not strong enough to deal with what they're dealing with. Um, it's probably all of those things. And so it's always giving the dog the option and the choice um, to opt in or to opt out as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's super duper important. And one of the things that we both probably see is people come to us saying, I want more focus. I want more connection with my dog, but they're not thinking about whether or not they're focusing on their dog and connecting with their dog and listening and not just listening, but what you said, asking. Yeah, asking and, and knowing exactly what it looks like. Because sometimes when I'm working with people, they've actually never had their dog fully show up totally focused. And they don't know what it feels like until we start to show them what it feels like and what it looks like. Then we can actually get somewhere. A lot of people kind of think it's a breed trait. You know, maybe they didn't, maybe they don't have a border collie. Maybe they've got a Basenji and they feel like this is just how Basenjis are. Well, Basenji can also show up and be totally ready and totally focused in with you. But if you don't know what that looks like, you can't get there. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest things that I think behavior consultants, myself included, could really, really learn from agility and sport handlers is how to work with some of these higher intensity dogs in these really, really high intensity situations. So it's a lot of times with behavior consulting, we're really focusing on we're going to avoid these triggers and we're going to manage the situation and we're going to add exercise and we're going to teach the dog some coping behaviors. But a lot of times... I don't feel like I generally take my clients back to the place that was causing the biggest problem, if possible. Um, So, you know, if I've got a dog who is constantly um, getting over aroused at the dog park and he loves it for the first 10 minutes and then he's picking fights, a lot of times my first recommendation is we're just not going to go back to the dog park. But for your clients, the goal is absolutely to get back into that high intensity situation. So what are some of the handling skills in particular that you really need to see from a good sport dog trainer and handler to help those dogs get through this. So it's interesting because you're right. A lot of times in pet dog um, training or behavior work, we have the option of saying, let's, let's no longer put our dogs in those tough situations. Um, But sometimes, and again, I think you're right. This is where a lot of behavior consultants would kind of up their game if they did train some high intensity sports. Um, Sometimes, though, the owner can't keep their dog out of that tough situation. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you do have to teach them how to deal with stuff in real time, in real life. Um, And it all comes down to, for me, it all comes down to clarity. So it all comes down to very, very clear communication between the dog and the handler. So having... Um, a clear system of communication about reinforcers. This is how you're going to get paid and this is where you're going to get paid. And I'm going to tell you every single time when your payment is coming, as opposed to just kind of, oh, yay, good job. Here's food. Oh, that was really nice, but I'm not going to give you food for that. (laughs) And, you know, (laughs) and that kind of thing saying, yep, cookie, yep, cookie. And then um, kind of silence in those other times. I think 
it can feel kind of like mechanical and robotic to people at first and it doesn't feel as good because we love them and we like to chatter at them mm -hmm. and we like to talk to them. And I certainly talk to my dogs all the time. But when I'm trying to teach them or change a behavior, I need to get very clean and very clear really fast. Um, the more clear you are, the better able they will be to filter your information with all this other crap they're filtering. Because that's the whole problem is they can't even begin to listen to you if, you know, you live in a high rise and you've got a dog that's reactive towards whatever and you're just trying to take the dog to go out for its potty walk. But it can't listen to mm -hmm. you when there's monsters everywhere and that kind of thing. If you get really clear, then they barely, they don't even really have to be listening because the information is just coming in. Um, Absolutely. So I think it's a lot of that. And then, you know, with handling skills, that to me comes back to like dog agility. And if you're not clear about where the dog is supposed to go at what time, that's when we usually see those behaviors we don't want to see. We see the spinning and the barking and the biting and also the sniffing and the checking out. So I'd say that's probably mm -hmm. the same with um, your dogs in real life, kind of urban, suburban environments too. Yeah, absolutely. And I know one of the things that I've definitely learned quite a bit from your podcast that I had never thought about before, um, because when I'm working as a behavior consultant, I, I'm almost exclusively using chicken <laughs> and hot dogs and other tasty treats. I'm not doing a ton with toys and other options for reinforcers, and I'm doing more and more, but a lot of my clients, their their dogs aren't that interested in that. But with my own dog, um, I've got a border collie who's a ball fiend and a tug maniac and all these other labels that often fall under the border collie category. And I've personally learned a ton about being clear when I'm going to give him a cookie and when I'm going to give him a tug. Because if I'm not clear about that, I will get sharked occasionally in the hand because he thinks I'm about to throw the tug toy at him. Absolutely. And, yeah. Those are the things that you don't realize how much they matter until you get one of these dogs that's got really big feelings about the ball or the food or the whatever. And I think that food is usually our most efficient reinforcer and that's usually what I would use as well with clients. But sometimes you get a client that's got a super intense dog that would really, really benefit from just some smart toy skills because they might actually be mm -hmm. able to listen to you um, instead of bark and lunge if they knew a tug toy was at stake, whereas they might not be able to for a piece of chicken. Absolutely, because we've all met that odd dog that actually isn't all that in chicken. Um, also, there's that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, it's and true. sometimes, as as our friend Hannah Brannigan says, we just have to teach them the chicken-eating behavior. It's not, it's not necessarily innate. We can build on it. But when we're coming with the tools at hand, we need to work with what we've got at first. Um, and one of the other things that I think behavior consultants could really use, um, you know, because if we're talking about a shelter behavior consultant, they're probably not bringing tugs in. I know when I worked at Denver Dumb Friends League, we talked about tugs and we used them occasionally, but there's a pretty big risk um, when you're working with really amped up shelter dogs of um, a staff member getting nailed. And then we have a mandatory legal 10 day bite quarantine. So playing tug was not a great option, but we did do a lot of working on teaching the dogs where to look for treats to avoid getting nipped. Um, and I don't remember where I first heard about this, but just having a bowl out and dropping the food into the bowl instead of having the dog take a treat from your hand can be so helpful with some of these dogs that have a really hard mouth. 
Yeah, and it just all, it comes down to clarity again. The dog, if the dog mm-hmm. is clear about where that food's going to be, then they're not needing to shark at your hands. It's definitely true. Absolutely. So how, how do you start with this? And I know this is like your whole, your whole um, business essentially, but getting from the point where we've got a dog who, let's say we've got a broken start line stay, because that's pretty easy for even people who don't do agility to visualize. Where do we, someone comes to you and they say, okay, my dog can't stay in trials at all anymore. It, this is a disaster. How do we fix that? In a hundred words or less. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, um, any, so any problem that the person comes to me and they say it's a problem in trials and not in training, um, which happens all the time, then that's more about kind of bridging that gap between how are you acting in training and how are you acting in the trial. And if you've built a reinforcement history for the wrong behavior in the trial context, that's something that you'll need to take apart and undo in and of itself. But um, my kind of basis is always teaching the person a system of asking the dog if they're mentally present and then not asking them to do things that they're not able to do because we, we just do that all the time and then they get used to us doing that all the time. And then they're frustrated before we even started. So how do I do that? I teach them a lot of reinforcer skills. So meaning I teach them, when I say dish, you eat food out of the bowl. And when I say yes, you eat it out of my hand. And when I say, you know, get, you bite the toy from my hand. When I say something else, I'm going to throw the toy. And that's kind of where I begin. And then I start to ask them to discriminate those things. So now I'm asking for like this deeper thought project from the dog. So if I can swing a ball on a rope and ask Felix to eat food from my hand, and he, if he can do that, then he can definitely stay on the start line, hit his weave pull entry, and do all of those other things. But if I'm swinging that ball and I ask him to eat food and he bites the ball, he's saying I'm not capable right now of mm-hmm. these complex tasks that you're asking me for. So that's a little bit of a test, right? So we're if if we were at a trial, yeah, we we're gonna we're gonna see. Okay, can th- can this dog do this behavior? And that's something I would love to see. Um, you know, especially like a client whose dog struggles with barking and lunging at other dogs. Let's see. Okay, can you ignore the swinging ball or the do- the bowl of chicken and do this behavior? And if you can't, then we're certainly not ready to take this behavior on the road, so to speak, around barky other dogs. Yeah, and I kind of. Um have started to refer to this as adding pressure with reinforcers. So meaning anytime you ask for a behavior, anytime you give a cue, you're asking the question, does your reinforcement history for complying with this cue um, outweigh the pressure of the environment right now? So if your dog Mm. can sit and look at your face in your kitchen, no problem, but cannot do that on your porch or cannot do that, you know, with other dogs around, then they're saying that, your reinforcement history doesn't hold up to that kind of environmental pressure. And what we can do is add environmental pressure with our reinforcers, like that ball, like the bowl of chicken, um, long before we add environmental pressures that we have no control over. Absolutely. I think that's a a great point that I just want to reiterate is let's add some things that we can control that make the situation harder before we throw them into an uncontrolled situation. Yeah, I do. God, I just really, you you finish your thought to um, do it slowly and in layers. Because I think people 
think that if the dog's never making a mistake here, that you're not asking for enough or you're not making it hard enough. And I completely disagree. I think it should be, I think an error should be your information that you asked for too much, not your information that you're on the right track. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And then with all of that, you know, there are still times for both of us where our clients get into a situation. And hopefully, if you and I have done our jobs right, and our clients are listening to us, this doesn't happen often. But we do get into those kind of oh shit situations, um, where something still has gone wrong. So for me, I know I run into a lot of, okay, so we've got this plan, we're going to like the worst hike that we can possibly find so we can get out there. And we can do our nice off leash hike, and we're not going to run into anyone. And then there's someone there. So I know this is something that you are a huge proponent of is coming up with some of these plans for these oh crap scenarios so that we're not just talking about avoiding them, but we're also talking about how to tackle them with our clients. Yeah. And helping your clients to, you know, understand that those things will happen no matter how hard you try to avoid them. Because I think Mm -hmm. they just if you know, if you go to that terrible hike (laughs) that does no pretty (laughs) stuff on it just so that you can avoid the and you go in when it's raining and 40 degrees because that's (laughs) the best time to go because nobody's out um you still might run into somebody and just accept that that may happen and yeah have a plan for it so it kind of depends on what your dog's behavior is but throwing food is my biggest go-to for oh shit moments i throw food at my dog i throw food at other people's dogs um I have never thrown food at wildlife thus far, but usually I (laughs) throw food at my dog, hope they eat the food, and then the wildlife leaves. Um, (laughs) But, you know, yeah, have a plan for those things. And also remind yourself that when those things happen, it's a chance for you to gather information about where you are. Absolutely. So then you can almost... When you see it on the horizon, you can almost go, okay, this is going to be all right. I'm going to do my plan and then I'm going to have some information as opposed to like, I screwed up. I didn't mean for this to happen. It's going to be terrible. Um, I'm the worst dog owner everywhere. I'm the worst. Everyone else is the worst because they can never call their dog. Just also stop expecting the general public to have a recall. They don't. They don't. And their dog is going to be off leash. really don't. Yeah. (laughs) Um... And, then and I think coming at that with a plan is really important because I know when I was first starting out in behavior consulting, I, you know, I was reading, you know, Fired Up, Freaked Out and Frantic and Click to Calm and all these other books. And I just kept reading them and being like, oh, and then I got my first foster dog who was super, super dog reactive. And I was like, OK, this is great. But literally, like my next door neighbors on all five corners of my house have dogs that live outdoors. And I was yeah. So what did I do? And at first I would go on, you know, Facebook and ask and people were like, well, you should just avoid your triggers. <laughs> like, Which okay, is um, actually such a frustrating piece of advice that we have all given and that we have all mm-hmm. received. Um, yeah. It's not at possible. some point when you've got a one year old reactive shepherd, you still need to figure out how to get that exercise. Yeah. You, um, do. So. you do. And so, I mean, I'm a huge fan of um, using whatever you need to use to make sure everybody stays safe. I like basket muzzles if that's what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. I also sometimes just like get out of dodge kind of plans. Like if I have to walk past a certain yard to get to where I'm going to go, 
then I'm just going to get my dog from A to B as fast as I can and not treat that like a training moment. Yeah. I think that's really important because there are definitely times where we try to shove food in our dog's face and it's like literally falling out the other side of their mouth. Um, you're either going to stand that, there. Is and that helping? Help. I mean, I would say Probably no. Not. I mean, you're either going to stand there until that dog can eat. Which, Which could be is going to be a, I mean, we could probably call that flooding, right? Mm-hmm. Or you're just going to get from A to B. And I'm fine with using whatever restrictive device, like maybe a gentle leader, a front clip harness, that makes that easier for you as well to get from A to B. And then maybe you yeah. can give the dog a little more freedom when they are in a safer place. And then in my world, in the sport world, I mean, things are going to go wrong sometimes when you're running the course and you're going to mess up and the dog's going to spin and bark and bite you. And you should have a plan for that as well. Um, Yeah, because you can't can't necessarily throw throw food because you you don't have food on you. You can't. So, you know, I usually tell people to have a way to communicate with the dog. Okay, we're leaving now. Mm -hmm. And people get upset because they think that's like me applying a timeout or a punisher and I train it completely the opposite. I train it to we're going, we're putting your leash on and we're running to your treats or your ball. Mm -hmm. And then you can just get out of Dodge as fast as possible. And and introducing those things to the dog way before it's a problem are important. But then sometimes you're just introducing it on the fly because your your four neighbors have their dogs outside. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, yeah. It's lovely how the dogs that live outside the most are, and I know this is not a coincidence, there's some cause and effect here, but the dogs that are outside all the time are also the ones who seem to be crappiest. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, it, we can't just have all the all the lovely, lazy, sleeping on the front porch dogs all the time. No, I feel like I've seen those dogs twice in my life. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually, so I'm in Mexico right now, and I'm actually seeing more of them in some ways, and then less of them in other places. It's a, That could be a whole other podcast. Well, it is, because actually the dog culture in Mexico is very, very interesting, so you're right. <laughs> that is a it whole is. other podcast. And, well, and from city to city, too. We're in Mexico City right now, and it's much more, it reminds me a lot of Denver, um, versus we were in um, La Paz, which is the southern tip of Baja, California, sir, and... I was spraying citronella or throwing rocks at dogs every single walk. Um, and I had to resort to throwing rocks because I ran out of citronella. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that's a yeah. lot. <laughs> yeah. And it was, yeah, it, it, it was nuts. We did a lot of nose work. Um, instead. <laughs> yes. So let's, let's bring it back to behavior consulting and, um, and sport dogs. And one of the things that I love about, I think excellent trainers kind of across the board, but I see sport dog trainers doing particularly well is breaking things down into fun little like games and exercises that teach really good foundational skills. Um, do you have any favorite game? I know I've got a couple of favorite games that I've learned from sport people, but do you have any that you think would be particularly useful for kind of pet people or people who dog, whose dogs have some issues? Sure. My most, most of my go-tos are what I would call pattern games. So I mm-hmm. like to um, engage the dog in a pattern that's easy for them, that has a high re- rate of reinforcement. So pattern feeding is really big for me. So I will feed from this hand and then feed from the other hand and then feed from the other hand. And that seems really simple, but once the dog understands it's going to be fed from your left hand and then your right hand, and it's gonna happen in this rhythmic 
pattern. The dog um, will just kind of engage in that pattern and they almost are able to just kind of ignore the other stuff that's going on. Um, I will also do the same thing, but with cookies on the floor. So I'll put one on one side of my foot and then on the other side and then the other side and then the other side. And the dog eats, looks up at me, eats, looks up at me and is in this really nice pattern of just um, eating and then looking at me and then eating and looking at me. And once they know it, I always talk about it's kind of like knitting, which I don't mm -hmm. knit, but I'm just going to draw this conclusion anyway. But there's a reason that knitting is really popular in America, even though most people don't actually need to make their own clothes. Um, and it's because it's soothing, but it's not soothing when you're first learning it. Like it's kind of clunky <laughs> and you're kind of figuring it out. But then once you know how to do it, you can do it while you're watching TV or listening to a podcast or whatever. And um, I have people doing it in my seminars. I say it helps them listen. And I feel like it is the, these pattern feeding games are kind of the same for the dog. They can just engage in a pattern that they expect or that they find reinforcing. Um, I love it for just those kind of standby moments. Like you're walking down the street, you're training your dog, your neighbor wants to talk to you. So you stop and you pattern feed the dog while you talk to the neighbor. You're waiting your turn to run at an agility trial. So you pattern feed um, while you're waiting. And then that way the dog is occupied in something that helps him kind of stay in a helpful mental place mm -hmm. rather than just kind of being ignored and left up to their own devices. Yeah. And I love that there's the pattern incorporated to it because I know a lot of us who spend a lot of time training dogs, probably somewhat instinctively will just kind of feed intermittently while, while the dog is bored. Yeah. But the pattern adds that kind of extra layer. So one of the last things I wanted to talk about together with you was the thing that you, um, I think, are maybe best known for, I'm not sure about this, um, is your four steps to behavioral wellness and how you talk about those really as a huge foundation for your dogs, but also how there are times where just fixing those four um, pillars or steps to behavioral wellness can actually pretty much bring about those behavioral changes that we wanted without doing a whole lot of extra training. So can, can we, we can, can we walk, walk through, through what those are? are? Yeah, I like hate magic bullets, but this is the closest I've got to that, mm -hmm. which is what people kind of always want. They always want to do a thing and have everything get better. And if you do these four things, I'm not saying everything will be cured, but things will get better. Um, and they are exercise enrichment, nutrition, and communication. So exercise, I'm kind of known for really, really advocating off-leash exercise. If you can't do off-leash, a long line and a harness in a natural space. So kind of ditching the short leash neighborhood walk. Um, mm -hmm. You can do that if you want to, if your dog is okay, you know, enjoys it and you enjoy it, but make sure that they are also allowed to go out in nature and run around and literally just be as doggy as they want to be. So sniffing, swimming, rolling. My dogs rolled in something hideous yesterday. I don't even know what it was. Um, and, and just making sure they get adequate exercise. And to me, adequate also means the right kind. Being marched around on concrete is not what any of us were actually designed to do. 
and there's good research on this in people, there isn't in dogs, but there's a lot of research on the benefit, the health benefits of exercising outside in nature versus Mm -hmm. on a treadmill, on concrete, that kind of thing. Um, So exercise is my really, really big one. Mm -hmm. Enrichment. Environmental enrichment is something that the zoological community has embraced for a really long time. So captive, wild captive animals or captive wild animals have benefited from this for a long time. And it's really time for our pets to also benefit from it. They need stuff to do with their brain and they need to be given those things every single day. With dogs, it's easy to do because they like to eat and they need to eat and they're natural foragers and they're natural scavengers. So, um, and chewing is really good for them too. So my dogs typically get a frozen Kong every day, just full of um, nutritionally dense food. It's a meal for them. Mm -hmm. And then they eat another meal out of a puzzle bowl. So like a labyrinth plastic um, slow feeder bowl. And then throughout the rest of the day, they're either going to get a training session or they're they're going to get something to shred and ruin. So junk mail, (laughs) um, cardboard, things like that. And it just kind of depends on them what they like. But there's, and there's like groups all over Facebook on stuff like this now um, on just enrichment ideas, but it's another really important one. And then nutrition, um, I'm not a nutritionist and I'm also not a veterinarian, so I don't usually go super in depth on recommend recommendations here. What I can tell you is that anecdotally, Um, a fresh food diet tends to be better for everybody than a processed food diet. And that's true for people and that's true for dogs. And so I really encourage people to find ways to incorporate fresh food into their pet's diet, even if it's not their entire diet. Um, And then communication, that's what we've just been talking about. I mean, having clear (laughs) communication, having a clear marker system communication, with your dog is so important. And just on a daily basis, you can mark and reinforce for behaviors that you like. So if I'm in my office, I've got a couple of dog beds in here. I have a cookie jar on my desk. And if they happen to go lay down on a bed, I'll throw food at them, especially the youngster, the eight month old. If he comes in here and lays on a dog bed, I throw food at him. And, (laughs) you know, those are things that are easy to do to help them to just help build a reinforcement history for the things that you want to be seeing, because that's really all, all it is. And the more unnatural that behavior is, it's pretty unnatural for an eight month old border collie puppy to stop moving at all. So (laughs) the more unnatural those behaviors are, the more reinforcement history they require to remain robust. So just think about that on a daily basis. So that's the four steps, um, exercise enrichment, nutrition and communication. Yeah. And I will say, um, just to tell a little story of how much off leash, um, hiking and running is so helpful for both myself and my dog. Honestly, like I haven't run for at least 24 hours and I'm starting to feel a little crazy. You're going crazy. Um, yeah. And I'm sure my dog is feeling the same way. Um, but we recently had a really interesting experience. Our Airbnb in Guadalajara had a rooftop guard dog. Um, that spent 24-7 barking at us, and he could see into our our window and would just bark at Barley, my border collie, pretty much 24-7. Yeah, it was really not awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I was doing everything I could to feed and play white noise and close the blinds and everything I could. 
But what I really saw was as soon as Barley and I could drive out of the city and go do a nice hike, he would go from before the hike, um, pinning his ears every time that dog barked. And even if he was startled, he would run over towards that other dog and look like he was thinking about starting to yell back, which would be very reasonable on his part. Um, And then if we went and did like a two hour hike, which we tried to do almost every day, and then when we came back, he would be much more copacetic about the whole rooftop guard dog thing for at least a couple hours. Um, Um, Yeah, it's real. I mean, it's incredible. I Um, see very real behavioral changes in my dogs, too, if they don't get their exercise. And like you said, it's the same for us. I mean, it's it's very much good for all of us to go outside and walk. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And you don't have to be doing like terribly difficult trail runs or super intense mountain biking or anything. Just go walk. Um, Yeah, that's I think that's the one that I personally have seen the biggest change with for my own dog is and it's the difference between because we run almost every day. I still see much more of a benefit from him if we drive out of the city and go do a trail run Versus if I just, you know, throw on my running shoes and we run out the front door and then we're crossing streets and we're negotiating dogs and there's buses going by and buses are kind of scary today. Yeah, because it's not just about exercise. It's about what their brain gets from being out in a natural environment. Absolutely. Um, So let's just close out with if you... If you could see some things coming from behavior consultants, because I'm sure you have some clients who kind of have worked with multiple different high-end trainers and behavior consultants, what are some of the things that you think like people like me could really learn from people like you? And what are some of the changes that you would like to see going forward in either either field, really, but especially behavior consultants? For behavior consultants, um, which is such a hard job working with people's pets or working in shelters. So I just have so much respect for anybody working in that field. I did for a long time um, and it was hard, but the, the biggest thing is that if the dog's basic needs are not met, you will not actually get anywhere. And I think a lot of times we, I mean, every time we walk into a client's home, we're ready to pick our battles with this person because they're not a trainer. They don't want to be a trainer. They want you to fix the thing, right? And so you're always ready to go, okay, what's the most important thing for us to do here? Because I know I can't do everything. Bump exercise and enrichment higher on your list. Because it's not that hard for people. If you say to them, listen, a lot will get better if you stuff a Kong every day. Or stuff Kongs Mm -hmm. once a week and give your dog one every day. Because things actually do get better when they do that. And it's something that they can do. They can learn to do it right away. <laughs> and um, they will see results pretty quickly from it as well. So in upping those kind of basic needs, the exercise and the enrichment, especially um, right off the bat, is a really big one. And then the other one is um, get involved in, you know, I'm not saying you have to go compete in a sport because it's just not for everybody and that's fine. But take it upon yourself to train some high-level behaviors. Train some complex behavior chains to your own dogs. See what you learn from that. Because it's always best for you to be teaching people who are not on the same level as you, uh, who are a few chapters behind you, basically, in the training game. So keep make sure that you keep your chops sharp, basically. Because I, 
you know, I know a couple of friends of mine who just got into agility in the past few years who were have been behavior consultants for a long time who say that it's totally up to their game to have to go to a class every week with a bunch of crazy dogs and <laughs> learn how to actually help their dog not be insane and do these high level behavior chains. Um, I think you'll be surprised about what you can learn about reinforcers, about arousal levels, um, and that kind of thing if you do get involved in stuff like that. Absolutely. I know Sarah Dixon, who is the president of the IABC and um, does the Hair of the Dog podcast. She's talked a lot about titling her dogs, partially as as a behavior consultant, as a thing for her that's really important because it also helps basically say someone else wrote these objective, in some cases somewhat seeming arbitrary rules, and I was able to train my dog to a point where someone I do not know said, yes, that is very good. And training your dog up to that objective standard is something that I'm starting to really realize is incredibly important. And I'll say even like I did CG CGC with my dog, Canine Good Citizen, after having worked with hundreds, if not thousands of shelter dogs. And I still learned from that just from the like, oh, okay, so we've got to, cr- okay, and oh, and he can't cross in front of me? Okay. Yeah, like, yeah so here's... Fine. Because, because that's Does that matter? That's what you're doing at the end of the day as a behavior consultant is trying to help someone train their dog to an arbitrary set of rules. Because all dog mm-hmm. behavior is normal, it's just that some of it isn't cool with us in our society. So it's this arbitrary set of rules that you're trying to train this dog to meet. So saying, okay, well, here's a even weirder arbitrary set of rules, and I'm going to train my dog to meet those rules. I think it's excellent. I think it's very important. Mm -hmm. And I think challenging ourselves with our own dogs is so important too, because it, I mean, even just running into training bumps with my own dog, gives me so much more empathy for my own clients. And I, I know when I write about that on my blog and then clients are able to find that it often really helps them be able to see that like, oh, I'm also human and my dog also isn't like literally just the perfect 30 second video clips that I share on Facebook. Um, So let's wrap it up. Sarah, can you let people know where to find you? Yes. So I'm on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash the cognitive canine. I also, Cogdog Radio also has a Facebook page. Cogdog Radio is my uh, podcast, which you can find anywhere you can get podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, um, etc. And I have a blog also at thecognitivecanine.com. Cool. All right. Um... So before we go, be sure to subscribe to the Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. You can find episode notes and other bonus material at canineconvos.com. And that's canine all spelled out, which is the same for Sarah's website as well. And I'm Kayla Fratt, the owner of Journey Dog Training. You can find my blog and or hire me for remote behavior help at journeydogtraining.com. And my YouTube channel and Facebook are also full of information. You can find those at Journey Dog Training as well. Before we go, please be sure to subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. You can find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com. You can also contact at hello at canineconvos.com and that's canine all spelled out. We would love to hear from you. Our theme music is called Funny Song and it's provided royalty free from bensound.com. 
Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beheard.org.uk. And lastly, our logo is from Walker Hooper. You can find his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. Thanks so much, guys.